Welcome back to the Open Source Startup Podcast. As usual, this is Tim from Essence BC and our lovely co-host, Robbie from Cowboy Ventures. Super excited to have Charlie, founder of Astral, which is building high-performance developer tools for the Python ecosystem. So welcome, Charlie. Thank you. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Awesome. So on this podcast, we like to start all the way back at the beginning. Why don't you give us kind of the founding story for Astral and Rough and where the idea came from? Yeah, totally. So um, I really spent my career as an individual contributor, as an engineer. And, you know, my most recent job, I was at a company called Spring Discovery. It's a computational biotech company. And I joined as the, the second engineer and I was responsible for a lot of our like software infrastructure, data infrastructure, machine learning infrastructure. So we wrote a lot of Python. Um, we had what I would consider to be like a pretty large Python code base. And I guess there were kind of like three observations or three things that happened that led me to start working on Rough, which is sort of the first tool in the tool chain that we're building at Astral. The first was that I felt like a lot of the Python tooling was struggling to keep up with like the scale of our code base. And I mean, we weren't even like that big of a team, but even at that size, the tools just like weren't performing in the way that I was, I, I, I sort of hoped that they would. And we spent a lot of time as sort of infrastructure engineers, like kind of like working around the tools and like building around the tools to get them to work at the scale we were operating. The other was we started to use Rust a little bit internally. So our code base was like mostly Python, but we had some Rust. And so I started to see the way that like Rust and Python can kind of like cohabitate in a single code base um, and like the ways that we could leverage Rust while still getting a lot of the benefits from Python. And then the third was that I was spending a lot of my time also doing like web programming, like TypeScript and JavaScript. And there was kind of this like trend that happened in web tooling where a lot of web tooling started to get written in languages that like aren't JavaScript. Web has all these problems with like, as applications get larger and larger, they have a lot of tooling, the tooling gets slow, the development cycle gets slow. So people started to rewrite web tooling in like Go and Rust and Zig. And I hadn't really seen that happen for Python. So when I left Spring, I actually left with the intention of exploring starting a company, but I, I really did not think it would be this. <laughs> I mean, I don't really, I didn't really know what it was going to be. It was like me and a friend, we were kind of like exploring ideas, figuring out this like Venn diagram of like interests and like where we want to spend the next, I mean, if things go well, you know, decade plus or whatever of our lives. But in my free time, you know, quote unquote, I just kept wanting to work on like developer tools. <laughs> like, like I just love building tools. And that was the thing that I kept coming back to. And so all of my own ideas were like, Oh, developer tool for X. Oh, developer tool for Y, developer tool for Z. And it, everything I was working on was like very technical. And Rough was one of those things. So Rough is a Python linter and code formatter written in Rust. So Rough will sort of analyze your Python programs, find potential issues. You know, in many cases, it can like fix them automatically. So it will also like transform your code in different ways. And, you know, that project for me started as like, I think there's room to build better Python tooling. I think Rust could be like a big part of that. I've written some Rust, but I want to get like better at Rust. I've never built anything like this before. So it seemed both like a way to kind of explore this hypothesis I had for like Python tooling could be very different and a way just to like build something that I thought would be like fun and interesting to, to build, honestly. And for me, Rough was like this side project that I was just kind of like working on while we were figuring out what we wanted our company to be. And, you know, I kept being like, oh, 
this feels like a distraction. I need to like come back and like, we need to like go like figure out like what the company is going to be. And my friend really encouraged me like to get it to the point that I could actually release it. He was like, you should trust your like instincts and your intuition that like this is interesting. Cause like, if you think it's interesting, like I'm sure other people would find it interesting too. So, you know, in those first like few weeks of working on rough for me, it was really working towards this milestone of like, I want to do this initial release where I can kind of like plant a flag around this idea of like better Python tooling and use rough as an example of like what that tooling could look like and just like see if anyone cares. And, you know, there was like every possibility that I would just like stop working on it. Like if, you know, people not responding to your launch does not mean that the thing you built isn't good, but like I was hoping that people would care and that that would kind of give me like the motivation to like keep working on it and, and see it through. So like the early days of rough were really focused on like that launch of like, what do I want the initial launch to be? Like what argument am I trying to make about tooling? And like, what do I need to actually do to prove out this hypothesis? And for rough, that was like, okay, it needs to be able to like parse Python source code and it needs to be able to like analyze it to a certain degree. And it needs to have like a few examples of the kinds of lint rules that you would expect from a linter, like detect unused imports and things like that. But it doesn't need to support like every feature. It needs to sort of prove that it is viable to like write Python tooling in Rust and that the tooling could be much more performant. All the early work was focused on like that kind of launch and that blog post and, and all the evidence that I would need to go into like proving that point. And when we first did the launch, I, you know, I wrote this blog post that said the title was something like Python tooling could be much, much faster. And the blog post was really like, I mean, not to say it was like so amazing, but it was meant to be more of like a, this is like my thesis for like why and how Python tooling could be faster. And here's an example of a tool that demonstrates those ideas. And I, you know, I got lucky, like the blog post was very well received. You know, it was on Hacker News, like I got a lot of attention and that kind of kickstarted the project because from there you get people who are interested and start contributing you get like some early users who are like especially crazy and like willing to use your tool even though it's like super unstable and things kind of snowball from there yeah i'm reading your blog post that talks about like the speed up and i think everybody that kind of has read that blog post and all the reaction to it is just like how crazy fast it's compared to like the normal toolings out there so just talk about like a little bit of the timeline some of the how you grew popularity you posted a blog post and you have almost 200 linter rules already built up. I guess the question for me is how did you decided, like, even though I see the speed up, you know, to actually build like a full on linter or to even going down this journey, I assume there's a lot more work that needs to be happening. Like there's a lot more coverage work, a lot of small bunch of features. Like, so you need to have like quite a few like conviction, like we should continue. <laughs> we should keep doing this rather than just a proof of concept. Do you get early signs that motivates you to keep going? And to what point you got really big adoption? You know, what was like the maturity level that you had? To yeah. To? Yeah. So I think, you know, for me, like when I started working on rough, we made a smart decision, I think, which is that we said, we're going to try and be a drop in replacement for some existing tools. And well, that did a couple things. One, it meant that if we achieve that goal, like it would be a lot easier for other people to adopt the tool. Like if it's truly a drop in replacement, then hopefully you just drop it in, right? And it doesn't cause a bunch of churn or a bunch of work for you. But the other is that it um, helps a lot with like the scoping and the roadmap of what you need to do. Because we were then like, okay, if we want to be a drop in replacement for this tool, well, what does this tool support? And then we could go through, you know, that defined list of, of rules and characteristics. And 
once we started having people who were like interested in the project, I just started like pretty ruthlessly looking at, you know, asking myself this question over and over again of like, what's stopping project A or project B or project C from like adopting rough. And I would just go look and I would say like, okay, they're using this plugin that like we don't support. Okay. That's what we're going to work on next. We're going to like take that plugin. We're going to go implement all the rules. And I actually looked, you know, I pulled, not that it was like super sophisticated, but I like pulled popularity data around like the most popular lint rules and like the most popular plugins. And I was just like, okay, we're going to do like this one, this one, then this one, then this one. And we would just, that work, I don't know that I would say it was easy, but it was well-defined because I was like, okay, I know Project X is like blocked because they can't adopt this thing. And they've like told me that in a GitHub issue and we can just go and like implement that. That's like known work that I can do if I just put in the time. So, you know, I, I think there's a few things to that. One is like, I just really focused on like this question it's actually such a simple question, but I still ask myself it constantly when I'm thinking about prioritization, which is what's stopping, you know, arbitrary project or even like specific project from like using your thing. Like if you just go and look at that project and look at their configuration and look at their needs and look at their setup, like what are you missing? You don't have to solve the exact same problem in the exact same way as whatever tool you're competing with does, but you need to think about it from the perspective of like that project and that user. Like, they're going to look at your thing and they're going to be like, we have these needs. This is the reason we can't use that tool. So I was just like pretty, I don't know, ruthless sounds bad, but I was just pretty ruthless about being like, what are we missing? And like, let's go remove those barriers to entry for like people that want to use the tool. And the other is like in those early days, especially, and I, I still think this way, like all the time, both because I think it's great for the project and I think it's just a great thing in general. Like I viewed like every single interaction that I had with someone on the repo or online as a chance to basically like make a friend <laughs> or like gain a supporter. I wanted to leave everyone with like a good feeling and like a good impression. Like even if they came and like filed a bug about how something didn't work or they weren't going to use my thing anyway. Like I just really focused on like trying to create like good energy around the project and give everyone who engaged with it like a good experience. And the ultimate form of that is like, especially in open source, is like someone files a bug and you fix the bug and you cut a new release like the same day. And then that person, like you have basically made a friend for life because that person is like, wow, I feel super empowered. I feel like this person's really listening to me. I feel like I have some buy-in on this project because I came in and I like suggested this thing and then they agreed and then they fixed it and then the fix came out. And like, that's just a very magical like feedback loop. And I mean, it's good. Now we have a lot of users. We can't like release like with quite that aggressive of like a release cadence. But like in the early days when we could do that, that was like a really powerful thing. And so just like having a lot of respect for like your users and contributors and like taking advantage of the fact that you're working on open source, like that's such a unique direct relationship that you have with your users that like other kinds of like companies or products don't have. I've always just tried to view that like put a lot of weight on like the power of those like direct interactions that we have all the time. You know, in the early days, especially that means like people come to your project, they like kind of want to use your thing, but you're missing this X, Y, or Z, just like prioritizing those interactions. And, you know, with open source, you kind of get out of it, like what you put in. 
like we have a lot of really great contributors and you know we find that like the more time that we put in as like a core team putting together like really good issues that are approachable for people and where the problems are like broken down so that people can come in and like take them off piece by piece like that leads to more engagement and like the faster you are and the more responsive you are and like reviewing contributor pull requests you know if you review a contributor pull request and, and you turn it around pretty quickly they're much more likely to do another one the more like responsive and engaged you are in the repo, I think that can have a really powerful like cyclic effect for creating a great contributor base, like creating users who really like what you're doing, all that kind of stuff. I love that you talked about the relationship that you can have through open source because we talk about a lot of the distribution benefits, but I don't think that many folks will highlight this direct relationship, which I really think it can drive your roadmap. It can also drive contributions. Like there's a lot that you can get from it. I want to talk about your decision to start with a linter because you talked about wanting to build developer tooling for the Python ecosystem. Why was a linter the best place to start? And what other like tools were you thinking about initially, but might put off to be like the second or third thing that you release with Astral? There's probably like the real answer why I started with a linter. And then there's like the hindsight answers of like why it was a good choice. <laughs> and I can, yeah, I can give you both. I think the real answer is that one, it seemed like a tractable problem for someone who hadn't built this kind of developer tooling in the past, which like may or may not, I guess I built it. So like, it is true, but like, it's not like an easy thing to build, it turns out, but it seemed like a tractable problem. And when I was at Spring, we use linters like really heavily. And so I had a lot of experience with like what the ecosystem looked like in that, you know, that sort of slice of the problem space. And so I felt pretty confident that like, I kind of knew what would be required for someone to adopt it and, and and knew that there was an opportunity to, I thought, I think build something better. I think in hindsight, you know, if you view what we're trying to do as like build out, let's say like a unified or like a comprehensive Python tool chain, I think a linter ended up being like a very good entry point for us for a couple of reasons. One, it doesn't have to run code. Let me put it that way. And it doesn't operate at runtime. It's something that runs over your code. And so it is slightly lower stakes and people are more willing to, I think, experiment with the tooling as opposed to something that is actually part of your sort of like runtime code or something that, you know, gets called at runtime in some other way. Like this is a tool that runs offline, like during development. And so I think there was like a little bit more appetite for experimentation there versus something that would be right, you know, in your production, running in your production environment in some way. The other is that you know, despite that, it's a tool that like developers use directly. It's like in their face. <laughs> you run the linter, you install the editor extension, it like sits in your editor as you're writing code. So it's something that has like a direct touch point with users, which I think is fantastic. Or it's just a great benefit because people who are using rough like know that they're using rough and they have feelings about rough, right? And they like invoke rough and, and all that kind of stuff. And there are other parts of the stack where I think, you know, when you're building there it can just be harder for users to even know that they're using your thing. Like just depending on where you sit in the stack, I'm really happy that we ended up using something where you basically have a direct relationship with the user. The other thing is a linter, the definition, it can be pretty broad. So like within the within the confines of like a linter, we've actually implemented like a lot of different kinds of code analysis and code transformation that all fit into that model. You know, like for example, Rough now does like import sorting. So in Python, people use typically would use like a dedicated tool for this, which takes your imports and like sorts them in alphabetical order roughly and like groups them and such. And like we, instead of having that be a separate tool, we just decided that should be a lint rule. 
like, are your imports sorted? And so that paradigm of like analyze the code, output a diagnostic and like take some action on it is very general. So we've been able to cram a lot of different like behavior and functionality into that model. So it's ended up being like a great entry point. And it also naturally has segued into like some of the things that we've done next. So we recently, like a month ago, we released a code formatter. So that doesn't like look for problems. It just takes your code and reformats it, which is like, sounds sort of trivial, but is like something that pretty much every project in the world now uses to get rid of a lot of the sort of style debates that have plagued programmers for a long time. So it just takes your code and reformats it. And basically we bundled that into Rough. And the people that were already using Rough as a linter, they're like, oh, can Rough also be my formatter? Can Rough also be... That's something that we've heard like from the very beginning. So it ended up being a very good wedge whereby we really focused on making it easy for people to adopt. The fact that it was a linter, I think, made it easier to adopt than certain other parts of the tool chain or parts of the stack. But it's a really good like jumping off point for a lot of other things we want to do because we're developing this direct relationship with users. We're getting into their workflow. Like we're kind of building a brand, I would hope, around building great tools that people like. And it's it unintentionally, I think, ended up being a really good place for us to start. But I do not think I was really thinking this far ahead at the time. <laughs> I'm curious, this might get into a little bit of the weeds, but since you're rebuilding the tool sets and obviously a big speed of sounds like is actually using Rust for implementation is a lot more faster, but I'm mm-hmm. sure there's trade-offs when you actually rebuild something that's been out there for a while, right? It doesn't make it just easy, just just write it in Rust and you're done, right? I don't think it's that easy, but it <laughs> no, definitely can make it feel like that's just what's happening. So maybe can you talk about like what's actually the hardest part of making something existing like a linter formatter actually fast? And besides just trying to rewrite it, I guess I don't suppose maybe unpack, okay, what if anybody wants to embark on similar journeys, what actually is like the hardest part for you to actually able to achieve this? Yeah, totally. So one one thing is like, um, since we're writing stuff in Rust, our tools generally don't actually have access to Python. So um, when you're writing a developer tool in Python, you have access to like the Python standard library, and um, you can take advantage of a lot of things that are like built into Python and that Python tools are like known to leverage. Like we don't really have access to any of that stuff. So like if we need to, you know, write code I don't know. This is sort of a trivial example, but like maybe we need to know whether a word is a reserved keyword in Python, like class or def or if or while, like those are reserved keywords. There are likely utilities in the Python standard library that can tell you whether something is a keyword. There are also utilities that can tell you whether something is a valid like variable name. Like does it contain special characters? Does it blah, blah, blah. Like we don't really have access to any of that stuff. So like when we need access to that, we have to like write it ourselves. And so we're basically like looking at like, how does it work in Python and then porting it over to Rust. So like, depending on how deep we need to go, you know, for example, like we wanted a system to be able to resolve Python imports. So when you write like import foo, what file are you importing? Like that's a surprisingly complicated question (laughs) to answer, but you know, we don't have access to Python to like help us answer that question. So we actually have to write like a module resolver and a lot of other stuff that you might get for free. So the fact that we're not using Python, yeah, it does come with some costs, especially when it comes to things related to like the Python runtime or like imports or things like that, where they're just like very built into Python. And if you don't use Python, you you don't, don't get access to any of those things. Yeah, the other thing to say is like, it is possible to write slow Rust code for sure. You know, it's also like depending on where your bottlenecks are and like why things are slow, like you may not end up getting the speed ups that you might expect. 
I think some decent portion of the challenges that we've run into have come from our commitment to compatibility with existing tools. So like when we built our code formatter, it was a very intentional goal from the start that it would be highly compatible with existing code formatters. And I'm very happy that we made that decision because again, it's about how do you optimize for adoption? And like people don't want to adopt new code formatter and have like all the code in their project change because the formatter has totally different rules. Like we wanted an experience where people adopt the formatter and like they actually see like minimal changes, but it's just way faster and integrated with Rough. And so that challenge there was like, okay, we're going to try and build a formatter that's like over 99% compatible with some other existing formatter. So that's not just a challenge of like, how do you write a code formatter? It's like, how do you actually like reverse engineer and like understand the behavior of this other tool and then figure out how to actually port it to your tool, which has like a totally different architecture. So I think there's a lot of value and like our focus on compatibility, I think is like helped tremendously with adoption and growth and just like onboarding people to our tooling. But it actually, it does introduce like a lot of challenges with regards to like, you're putting constraints on what you can build and what you need to build. So Rust growth trajectory is one that I think any open source project wish that they could have. I think it took all of probably what, like eight months to get to a million monthly downloads and tons of stars, lots of popular Python projects and companies using the project. Are there any specific moments or maybe it was a project or a company that started using Rough where you really remember thinking like, oh, holy shit, this is really working? Or was it just as soon as it launched, it was just like up and to the right from there? Yeah, there are a lot of moments. I mean, some of the early ones that I think about often are like Pydantic, Samuel Colvin's project. They were a pretty early adopter. And I remember I woke up one morning and there was like a Twitter thread basically where someone tagged me in a Twitter thread with Samuel Colvin being like, hey, have you seen this thing? You might find it interesting. He's like, oh, this is really interesting. And then, you know, over the course of a few days, they eventually like adopted it. And that was one of the first big projects to adopt Ralph. And I was like, oh, wow. And then Fast API, which is Sebastian Ramirez's project, adopted Ralph like pretty shortly after that. And that was, again, a situation where like he'd been commenting on various issues. And so I kind of like knew that he was like considering it. And like, I was like thinking hard about like the things that he needed to like in order to adopt it. But like Pydantic, Fast API, and Zulip, the messaging application, those were like three really big early adopters. Later, when Hugging Face adopted it, that was another like really big thing where I was like, oh, wow. Because they, I think they adopted it first. Well, they have a bunch of different projects, but like Transformers has like, I don't know, like over 100,000 stars. Like it's one of the most star repos like on GitHub and they adopted Rough. And I was like, oh, wow, that's like, this is really serious. Like people are really like kind of going out on a whim and like adopting this thing. And and, and all this time, like the thing for me, I mean, we also had like Pandas and like SciPy and like Scikit-learn, like these like decades old, like Python projects that had like hundreds and hundreds of contributors and like really big communities. And the thing that I was seeing was like, we were on version like 0.0.150 of this like crazy Rust-based tool. I was cutting releases like every day. And like, it was kind of wild to me that these projects were adopting it, honestly. <laughs> but to me, it was like, that is just a sign of like nearly unlimited demand for like this kind of tooling. It's like people really want this stuff that they're willing to adopt it even in this kind of nascent stage for like very mature projects. And so those moments... We still have a lot of those and they're very, very, it's really cool. Honestly, it's just very cool. <laughs> like CPython itself uses Rough now for some parts of it, which is 
very cool like flask recently adopted rough so that kind of stuff still happens and it's still like very powerful moments i guess the other thing i do think about still though is like you know if you look at the numbers like i think we're at about like seven and a half million monthly downloads but there's a lot of other tools that have way more right so like we're not like there yet right like we have a lot of like work to do still or there's a lot of people who still aren't using the tooling is maybe the way i'll put it and so i feel like there's still like a lot of room to run and grow in terms of like what we're building and like how we make people aware of it and how we try and cater to like all those different audiences that use python because it's like such a i don't know i would say even more so than javascript like it's just such a diverse community of use cases and users and so trying to build tooling that like works for all of them is something that we're trying to do basically but there's still a lot of room to run despite all the growth yeah it's super amazing able to actually get that kind of wide adoption and that sort of huge speed up. I want to maybe transition into thinking about you as a company, because I think Rough as a project has grown so tremendously well. And now you've raised funding, start a company called Astro. So I think it would definitely will be very obvious questions to be what is next for you? Because Rough, the linter, the formatter, these are tools that can drastically speed up everyone's user experience just using Python as a single player, I assume. And so there are many, many, many places you can go after this. What is sort of the thought process of a company now? Like, what is your idea? What is a commercial entity would do here? Is it trying to focus way more on the adoption front first and then figure something out later? Or do you have something in particular in mind when it comes to like some commercial products you want to build? Or Yeah, yeah, totally. So... Our vision, I mean, I guess it's both a vision and a strategy, is like, we want to build like a unified Python tool chain. So we're not just trying to build like just a linter or just a formatter. We really want like a tool chain that you can use for your Python projects. And so, you know, in my mind, that would also include like, I don't know that we'll do all these things, but when I think about like a unified Python tool chain, that could also include like a package manager, maybe like a test runner, like a type checker, or maybe like documentation tooling. Like there are opportunities and like, all these different slices of the tool chain that would sort of come together to be a single unified tool chain that you could use to like build, develop, even deploy like Python projects. So, you know, our focuses are really on obviously continuing to grow adoption of like the existing stuff that we've built, just continue to like invest in and improve those. Like they're certainly not done, like the linter, the formatter, and then like expand the tool chain outwards to like other tasks. And, you know, we're like thinking through like, what this could be. We obviously have a lot of ideas. The strategy for us is really, it's not like, you know, my goal is not to like charge people like $5 a month to like use the linter. Our goal is really to, to build software, you know, that we can sell that sits on top of the tool chain and that integrates with it really well. And, you know, what exactly that is, uh, you know, sort of TBD, but you know, the idea is like, if you're already using Astral software as like your package manager, your linter, your formatter, your test runner, blah, blah, blah. There's just like so many things that we could build on top of that, that would just be the obvious choice for how you do continuous integration or maybe even like deployment or whatever else. There's like, there's this whole space of things we could offer up here on top of all the open source tooling that we could just integrate really deeply with it, make it you know, zero configuration, um, just the obvious choice for when you're working with Python. That's the strategy for us now is like, we're just very focused on continuing to grow out that open source tool chain to put us in a position to build great services that we can sell that integrate well with our open source tooling. Yeah, and there's clearly a lot of different places you can take this. How do you think about prioritizing, building out more open source tools versus thinking about monetization and 
like when you think about your North Stars, like are you trying to balance doing both at the same time? Are you leaning on community input to figure out kind of where to go next? Because this is you're at this really pivotal moment that a lot of startups, open source startups in particular, find themselves at where there's a ton of adoption on projects. You could build more for the community or you can focus on a subset of the community that you can have some sort of paid offering for it. Like what in your mind is your North Star right now? And like, how are you figuring that out? Yeah, well, I guess the first thing to you know admit is like, I'm a first time founder. And so there's a lot that I just like, don't really know what I'm doing and I'm kind of figuring out as I go. So no one should take the things I say as like necessarily the, you know, the right answers to these questions. But you know, I think one thing I'm trying to lean on is like using the fact that we have all this distribution as a way to just like talk to companies that use our stuff. And so I try and spend time, you know, even though they are not like paying customers, just like spending time with companies that like use our stuff and like talking to engineers on those teams and like basically using that as a way to discover like what are the problems that matter to them? Like what problems are we solving? What problems aren't we solving? Like where could we go from there? And that also extends to like new product development. So, you know, as we think about like those next pieces of the tool chain, for me, part of building those, which is something that we didn't really do with Rough, like Rough, I kind of like built I mean, not like literally in a cave, but like I kind of built it, you know, in a cave and like released it and blah, blah, blah. You know, we now have like a lot of users and like people that we can talk to about like what are their needs when it comes to like this parts of the tool chain. And then how does that integrate with like things that you'd be willing to pay for? So it's sort of a long-winded way of saying I'm trying to couple like new product development now to like thinking forward to the monetization story and like using the fact that we have a lot of distribution right now as a way to, you know, get people to talk to us about like, what are their Python problems? Like, um, does this resonate with you? What features would you need if we were to build X thing? And that's working. I mean, it's working very well so far, obviously, like, <laughs> I mean, very well in that people are willing to talk to us and we have a lot of excited users who are excited about the things that we, you know, might build and they're willing to, you know, help us figure out as we shape both like the open source and the commercial roadmap. But I think the short answer is I really want to leverage the fact that we have this existing thing that a lot of people use and, and like. They're excited about that. And they're excited about the potential of us like building more stuff. That feels like a unique advantage to have. It's I guess it's not entirely unique to open source, but it does feel unusual. And so I'm trying to kind of leverage that as we look towards what are the open source tools we should build next and how do those fit into like the commercial plan and, and the roadmap. So since you're early, I'm still interested to know how you think about at least the process that you think you've been learning. Because when I think starting, even at the early stage, open source-based company, you need to spend so much energy to build adoption in a community, right, as a project. And once you have a company, now you have a deal challenge, right? Now I actually yes. start to have to think about it. <laughs> That's yes. sort of like thinking about process is so, so, so important because the company depends on the success of finding something commercially viable as well. So... I don't know how you think about this. I feel like every company in general has done this differently. Do you have certain things that you're doing already, even from like a company process-wise? Like, hey, maybe talk to larger customers to get what they might be using rough around or, you know, do some experimentation on some products with some wireframes. Like, I don't know, have you started with any sort of explorations that you think is actually already highly valuable for you to think about your next products? Yeah, I mean, the main like piece of process that I put in place there was really just like doing intentional user research from our existing user base. So like, 
you know, a while ago, I basically set a goal and I said, all right, we're going to go talk to, I don't remember what the number was. Let's say we said we're going to talk to 20 users this month or something. And we don't have any telemetry in the product. That's like a whole nother thing that we could talk about, but I'm not kidding. We basically have a list <laughs> internally of like companies that we know use the tooling. <laughs> it's literally just, just like a spreadsheet that we made. I mean, it sounds like stupid, but it works pretty well. And the way that we figure out like who's using our tooling, you know, a lot of it is looking at obviously the open source dependency graph. So like just look at companies who have an open source project that uses the tooling. But we also look at like, are people who work at certain companies coming in and like filing issues? And like, it's not like those people are like necessarily hiding that they use it, but like you can sort of tell like people that have an interest in the project in different ways. And 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 so we kind of, it can infer a lot from like what happens on GitHub and on Twitter and like in other places. So one thing we did was I basically tried to curate a list of companies that I like know, feels kind of creepy to say, but I, yeah, I basically have a list of companies that I know are like using the tooling. And then when I went out and I was like, okay, I want to go talk to like a bunch of users because we need to figure out like what problem we want to work on next. And we, I emailed a bunch of people or DM them on Twitter that I had interactions with that work at, you know, various companies that I knew were using the tooling and that maybe they'd already interacted with the repo in some way. And you know, I just went to them and I, I said the honest thing, which was like, hey, we have like a bunch of different ideas for what we want to do next we'd love to just like hear from you about like what your Python problems are to basically help us inform our roadmap. And those are like super valuable conversations really on like, I don't know, at least three dimensions. Like one, we obviously got a bunch of information about like what problems people have, right? And like where we should spend our time. But the other is like, it was also a way for us to develop a direct relationship with like a lot of people who are using the tool. And like, I don't know those people, right? And I like have a relationship with them. And like, when we have things that we want to beta test, we can ask them and, and message them and all that kind of stuff. So those are like some small tactical things we did. But like, I also kind of tried to use that as an opportunity to like, just in a very genuine way, obviously, but like, just like meet people who are using our stuff and like develop a relationship with them and like also make them feel like they have our ear, like for things that they want us to build. Apart from that though, there's not a ton else that we do on like, in terms of process, I would say we're pretty process light. <laughs> so I want to talk a bit about your content because content has clearly been a big catalyst for getting the company name out there, but also for the launch of Ruff. What is your strategy around content? And is this something that you always really enjoyed doing and it was pretty natural? And like, as far as what to release and how much it should be about Ruff versus the Python community versus other things. Like, how do you think about content? Because this is something that a lot of founders struggle with. Yeah, I didn't really have like much of a Twitter presence at all until I started like building Ruff, I think. Maybe a small one, but like my main, I guess, channels for content are like Twitter and then I do some blogging and then we do a little bit of blogging on the company blog. I think... The main thing for me has always just been like trying to make sure that my like genuine voice comes through. And also like when we started the company, this sounds weird, but I wanted a lot of my like own voice to come through like in the company. And so, you know, like the copy on the website, like all that kind of stuff. I just spent like a lot of time on it and like also like did it myself, which I mean, maybe that's not surprising, but like I was like, I want like our you know, slogans and like our titles and like, I want everything to like have this like consistent voice. And I think it should be like my voice, 
which is like maybe narcissistic, but it's like, I just think you know, the company and like my communications are kind of like intertwined when you're like this early. I think like we're in kind of a unique spot because like we're building developer tools for Python in Rust. And so my audience on Twitter, it's kind of a mix of like people who do Rust and people who do Python. <laughs> and like, I sort of try to find like, what are accessible ways that talk about things that can resonate for like both those audiences, even though they may not be like experts in like both of those fields. And I found people to be like really receptive to it. Like I spoke at a, like a PyTexas meetup a couple of weeks or months ago. And like, I gave a talk about like why rough is fast. And I was able to do it without like really showing much rust code, but I was still able to get into like a lot of the technical content and a lot of the technical topics. And so I think there are ways to like, tailor that content to be accessible to people regardless of like what their technical backgrounds are. And like the other thing I found, I think is like, you know, people in Python are like interested in Rust. And so um, there are ways to kind of like leverage that too. I guess the other thing I, I would say is like um, someone made a joke to me about how like the key thing in like that first blog post of the like Python tooling could be much, much faster was just like the graph. Like, I just have, like, a graph in the post of, like, a bar chart of, like, comparing rough to, like, a bunch of other tools. And that was, like, the open graph image on, like, Twitter and everything. And, like, having, like, a really good snippet that can, like, grab people like that is, like, really powerful. I've thought about that, too. When we did the formatter launch. Like, we had basically a similar graph. And I was, like, you know, finding ways to basically take the thing that you think is interesting and, like, distill it down into as small a space as you can, I think can go a long way too. It's a it's a very tough skill though. Like I think, you know, for me, like as a founder now, we're a very small team and it's still important to me and I still am like writing a lot of code, but I'm also like kind of like DevRel. I'm kind of like everyone's manager. Um, you know, I do all the like HR, admin, legal, investor relations, right? Like I'm doing like all those different things. The DevRel thing, though, and just like sort of like marketing your project, it's a very hard skill to learn. And like I sometimes, you know, come across projects where they're just like brilliant projects that just like aren't packaged in the right way. Like I think it's like such an underrated skill to be able to like take really incredible work and like frame it in a way so that people understand like why it's incredible and why it's impactful. And I feel like I've had some practice at it now and I'm getting like better and better at it. But I do think it's like a very underrated skill. And I sometimes just see these projects where it's like, they're so great, but they just need the right like messaging and the right framing. And so I don't know how you get good at it other than like practice and like seeing what works, but I do think it's a very underrated skill to be able to like take a really great project and basically frame it in a way that's like very accessible and engaging. Yeah, it's a very hard skill. And it's a very, very different skill than being like a great engineer. Oh yeah. I think every open source founder, either they come from like a more evangelism background or more of an engineer background, but typically more engineer. And that's just a skill they don't even know how or sometimes don't even spend that much time investing. So I want to ask Usually we'll end with advice you're going to give to other founders. I noticed they're early in your journey, but you've done quite a lot, especially gaining the adoption that you currently have. Is actually, I see a lot of open source projects or founders are trying to get to. So I'm sure plenty of people come to ask you advice already. What is like the most common advice you're giving to folks starting an open source based project? And what will be advice you also give to founders as well? 
I mean, one thing for me, I, I sort of said this earlier, but I just like really believe it is every interaction I have with someone on the internet that I've never interacted with before in the context of the project, I just really view that as a chance to like, I guess like make a friend is maybe the way to say it, is like in the sort of simplest terms. And I don't know, it costs nothing to be like nice and kind and like welcoming to people on the internet. And like, you never know who's going to go and then like write a blog post about your thing or like tell their friend about it or like tell their colleague about it. And so I think it's just really powerful to take a long-term and expansive view towards like, just like what all your interactions are. And like those things really, I believe those things really compound, you know, taking the time to be like thoughtful. And if you're going to close an issue as like something you're not going to fix, explaining why and like, you know, thanking them for like filing it. And, and you know, not, it's not just about lip service. It's about like, did they actually take time to file it? And then just like reflecting that back to them. I mean, like I said, like I have a long way to go and like building this company and like in this project, but like I tend to take a long-term view towards like all those little interactions. And I try and even over time in a sustained way, like approach them really deliberately and just put a lot of time into them. I think the other thing I would say is like, this sounds like grim, but like being a founder and being like an open source founder, it's just extremely different from just like working on an open source project all the time or something. Like there are just so many other responsibilities that come with being a founder. And like once you raise money and you have employees, you just have like a lot of responsibility to others. And so I don't know who would think this, but it's not like starting an open source company means you just get to like hack on your like cool thing all day. There's like a lot of other responsibility that comes with it. And so I just encourage people to, I mean, it's, I I feel extremely lucky that I get to do this. Like I have an amazing job. I get to work on like super interesting stuff with like the smartest people, but I do like, I don't know, I take it pretty seriously. And I guess different people have different views towards this, but I just think making sure that you have kind of eyes wide open about like all the responsibilities that come with like being a founder and like all the ways that you're going to, you're going to be pulled in like a million different directions. And you're going to end every day feeling like you need like another like 24 hours to like get all the things done that you're like hoping to get done. It's like someone said this to me, like make sure it's something you're willing to work on for like 10 years, right? Like make sure you think hard about like the decision to dive into it because because it does come with, you know, a lot of responsibility. I think that's a really candid note to end on and something that, especially given the current environment, I think a lot of founders need to think a lot more for because if you are going to go the venture route, you need to make sure that you have a, a pretty well thought through plan of how you're going to turn your project into an actual company. But thank you so much. This was fantastic, Charlie. So many great nuggets in here. We really appreciate you coming on. I really enjoyed it. And it was also an opportunity to talk about, I think, some different dimensions to like the project and the company and the business that I normally get to think about. So thanks for all the great questions. 